0: Chapter 2, verse 1. When these things had been accomplished, and the rage of King Ashurus had diminished, he remembered Vashti and what she had done, and what had been decided against her. The king's servants who attended him said, Let a search be conducted for the king's behalf. So when time had passed, and he was no longer drunk, and he was no longer angry, he kind of looks back in the night and he's like, "Ah." Oh, I miss her, but I can never, ever, ever see her again because I made a law forbidding that, and I can't overturn that. And I think we've all been there before, where you're angry or really sad or really tired, and you just say some things, and you're like, oh, crap, that's going to affect our relationship for a while. And I kind of regret saying that. He just did himself in. All of his advisors, who had the great advice of kicking her out of his presence, says, I know what will make you feel better. Let's just find a woman that her sole criteria is that she's extremely attractive and good in bed. That will cheer you up. Let it be a search done throughout the entire kingdom to look for that woman. There's nothing that helps you better get over missing your wife than that. And he says, okay. And so they begin to search. Now that is the bachelor and the bachelorette. Let a search be conducted in the king's behalf for attractive young women, and let the king appoint officers throughout all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the attractive women to Susa, the citadel, and to the harem under the authority of Haggai and the king's eunuch who oversees the women, and let him provide whatever cosmetics they desire. You have an unlimited shopping spree at the cosmetic store. What will you buy? And if we had television this time, we'd make it a reality show too. It's the pre-Kardashians. Let the young women whom the king finds most attractive become queen in the place of Vashti. This this seemed like a good idea to the king, so he acted accordingly. Can you imagine that? Like, there's two edicts that just went out. Wanted. State government job. You will work for the state and be administrative. What are your responsibilities? Going throughout the empire and looking for attractive women and gathering them up. You will be paid by the state. What the heck? And then the second notice is looking for all attractive women. Is there a commission on how many women you find? This is just ridiculous. This... You know what? I think... We've gotten so far as a society that if our government like, started creating positions like that, I don't think most people would really be shocked. They would just be like, ooh, ooh, I'm signing up for that season episode. I'm going to binge on it. Like not one's thinking like this is taxpayer dollars being used for this. <laughs> and yes, we're making fun of this because that's the whole point. That's what the narrator wants you to do is realize that we're not, and even our culture, we're not too far away from that does so it seem like a good idea. The sole criteria is that they're good-looking. Verse 5. Now there happened to be a Jewish man in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, and he was the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been carried into exile with Jehoiachachaniah, king of Judah, from Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and taken into exile. This is where we're first introduced to the McCain characters. We're going to be introduced to Mordecai, Esther, and then Haman's going to come along. So the story pauses for a moment to introduce these people. Now, the first time we're introduced, the first person is Mordecai the Jew. Now, this is very interesting. Nowhere in the entire Bible has a Jew ever been introduced as their name and their ethnicity or origin. All throughout the Bible we're introduced to David, the son of Jesse, or Saul, the son of Kish. We're always told who they are and the lineage of the family that they're in, who their father and grandfather and great-grandfather are. Because for them, we know they're Jewish, they're living inside the land, and genealogies where they came from are extremely important to God. And we've seen that throughout the Bible with all these genealogies. Nowhere they are they introduced as the, the, who they are in their ethnicities. Whenever you see people introduced as who they are in their ethnicity, it's Uriah the Hittite, or Rana the Jebusite, or Ittite the Gittite. When they're foreigners and they're not a part of the Promised Land, the fact that Mordecai is introduced as Mordecai the Jew is showing you the unique reversal that this is a story that is not in the promised land. Therefore, it's not about the people of the Jewish lineage in the land of their home. We now, for the first time ever, have a story about a Jew that is not in his homeland. And that was somewhat true with Daniel. But Daniel was still known as who he was connected to because there was a very deep Jewishness to him. But here we have Mordecai who's not a part of the the promised land. He's the Jew. And it's emphasizing that he is what is not, he is what is out of place. He is what is out of place in this scenario. Then we're told that he's a descendant of Saul. He's a Benjamite. Now remember the Benjamites were the people who screwed up big time at the end of Judges and did this massive moral sin against massacring the, um, um, this horrible sins that happens at the end of the book where they act like Sodom and Gomorrah and then they kidnap a bunch of women as their wives and all this kind of stuff. And from that point on, the Benjamites are known as, oh, the Benjamites. You know what they did and everybody that they're like. And remember, Saul was the grandson of a woman that was kidnapped by his grandfather and forced into marriage. And so this is a constant rival between Judah and the line of David and then the Benjamites. And the Benjamites are not seen as a favorable light. And so now we have Mordecai here. But this Benjamite, this um, bad look or the bad light that the Benjamites are in seems to have passed over the ages. And he doesn't seem to necessarily be put in that bad light anymore. So the narrator isn't exactly highlighting the bad light that he's in. It's mostly to highlight a contrast with Haman, who we'll get to a little bit later. Then we're told this, verse 6, sorry, verse 7. Now he was the acting guardian of Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for neither her father nor her mother was alive. This young woman was very attractive and had a beautiful figure, figure. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai had raised her as if she were his own daughter. Hadassah basically means myrtle. Her Jewish name is a myrtle branch or myrtle tree. And a myrtle tree is a very aromatic, like an evergreen kind of a tree. It's a very aromatic, um, beautiful, fragrant tree. And so that's what his emphasis says. But we're told her name is Esther. That's her Persian name. Most scholars believe that she gets the nickname Esther at the very end of the book in relation to the laws that she passes about the protection. We'll talk about that later. But Esther is the Persian pronunciation of the Babylonian Canaanite goddess of love and war. So Ishtar. Um, so Ishtar is a, that's her name. She's a Babylonian goddess of war and war and love violence and sexuality basically putting those together and you're like well that's a weird combination to put together in a god god of love and god of violence and war well just watch most hollywood movies they put those things together all the time and so that's the goddess is still very much active in our culture even to this day seems to be her nickname that she will later get knows that the only thing we're told about her is that she's very attractive. And what that does is that's setting her up for the fact that she will be taken and brought into the palace to further the narrative. But the other thing that's interesting is, remember, every, very rarely does the Bible ever mention anybody's looks. But every time the Bible mentions what somebody, that they're good looking or attractive, it always ends poorly for them they either are the source of temptation or destruction in somebody's life, or they attract temptation or destruction or chaos into their life as a result of it. And not that it's their fault that they're going out and attracting that. It's just that we know that that brings attraction of those kind of things in in those ways. And so this sets you up that something bad is going to happen. Of course, we know what it is. Verse 8. It so happened that when the king's edict and his law became known, many young women were taken to Susa, the citadel, to be placed under the authority of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the royal palace to be under the authority of Haggai, who was overseeing the women. This young woman pleased him, and she found favor with him. He quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her rations, and he also provided her with the seven specially Chosen young women who were from the palace. And then he transferred her and her young women to be the best quarters in the harem. It's not her fault that she was gathered up in the dragnet, so to speak, and brought to the palace. There doesn't seem to be anything that suggests that she signed up for this and volunteered for it. It seems to be more that she was seen to be attractive, she was taken, and she was brought to the palace. And remember, in a dictatorship or a monarchy, you don't say no to the king. Ever. But it does make the point that she sought to please the head of this whole bachelorette thing, and that, um, or the bachelor, I guess that would be more appropriate. That she sought to please and move up the ranks. And that she is trying to be the most attractive and the most favorable in all of this. That she does want to win. So that does say something about her character in this situation. Now, I'm not saying she sh- she is like not intelligent, because we're definitely going to see her intelligence and wisdom later. But it does say that this seems to be her focus and priority right now. Now, we don't know what's motivating her. Does she truly want this position because this is what she's like? Or is she just trying to secure a future for her, and this is the only way that she knows how to do it? We're not told her motives, yet she's not willing to make sacrifices in order to not defile herself. Daniel was willing to die to not defile himself. Esther is not willing to make sacrifices to keep from defiling herself. And so she gets favored as a result, and she's treated better than anybody else. Verse 10, now Esther had not disclosed her people or her lineage, for Mordecai had instructed her not to do so. And day after day, Mordecai used to walk back and forth in front of the court of the harem in order to learn how Esther was doing and what might happen to her. He specifically tells her not to reveal her Jewishness. Now, the fact that he constantly walks by the palace, probably they would have some kind of communication through a window or maybe something like that, suggests that he's acting like a father. He's trying to protect her. And so we, we totally understand And sympathize with him, why he would say, hide your identity. We can totally understand why a father would be pacing outside the window of his father, daughter, like um, the girl who's like a daughter to him in the middle of a harem. Okay, what father really wants their daughter to be a part of a harem? What daughter feels that she's safe and secure in that kind of a way? What daughter wants her? What father wants his daughter to be killed or massacred because people might find out what her ethnic identity is. All this seems to be motivated by a desire to protect her. However, at the same time, God never really lifts that up as an, an attribute, a favorable attribute or a, or a mark of good character. God never ever seems to say, oh yeah, I get why you're willing to be immoral and hide your Jewish identity or your Christianity because you want to just save your life that has never really held up as a mark of great character anywhere in the biblical stories. So though we can sympathize with them and relate to them and not judge them as horrible, evil people at the same time, and we can say, you know what? I know I might be really tempted to do that too as a, d- a father of three girls. At the same time, it doesn't mean that it's okay. It doesn't mean it's okay. Verse 12, at the end of the 12 months... This is 12 months. Just all you do all day is get pedicures and makeovers and, and spa treatments and all that kind of stuff and just lie around in beds because God forbid anything happened to your skin in any kind of a way. And all those stereotypical images that you have in movies of wealth and power and celebrities is exactly what's happening right here. Verse 12, At the end of the 12 months... Required the women, when the turn of each young woman arrived, that's also a long time. When you're really depressed because you just kicked your wife out of your life by law and you can't overturn it, and you decide to make yourself happy by finding an attractive young wife, and you've got to wait 12 months for that to happen, that doesn't seem, well, nothing's rational here. The king, for this way, he had to fulfill their time of cosmetic treatment. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfume and various ointments used by women. So this is like being trapped in Bath and Body Works for six months. That's like absolute hell. Just walking by the store with the door open gives me headaches. The women would go to the king in the following way. And whether whatever she asked for would be given, provided for her to take her from the harem to the royal palace. In the evening she went into the morning and she returned to the separate part of the harem unto the authority of Shazgar, the king's eunuch, who was overseeing the concubines and she could not go back to the king unless the king was pleased with her and she was requested by name. This is how it works. This is truly the bachelorette. Okay, if you've ever read people who've been part of the behind the scenes and they've come out and they've exposed the truth of it, basically this is what it is. Basically, you have all these beautiful women, and the king is just taking them one by one by one. And the only criteria is how well they perform in bed and how good they look. And he brings them in, and he sleeps with them, and he sends them away. And and it's like COVID-19. You have to go in one door and out a completely different door. He brings them in the one door, and then they send out another door, and they go to a completely different room where they're not allowed to interact with any of the women that have not been slept with yet. And this is literally all he's doing, night after night after night. He's just bringing them in, taking them one by one, and if he wants to be with them another night, then he'll ask for them another night. If he doesn't, then he won't ask for them. And this is the only criteria by which he's choosing them. And the women are allowed to take whatever they want with them in the room that night to please them as much as they possibly can. All this is just total depravity absolute total depravity and shallowness that is being done here now you have to understand something all these women are his wives the difference between this and the bachelorette or the bachelorette and bachelor is that once you get done being with all of them if you don't want to pick them they go off into the lies and you pick one which that never lasts either once the show is over with but all these women belong to him once this woman's been with him, they're not allowed to be with anyone ever again. And it is not uncommon for these women to live in a harem, and they would live all in the same room together, and the only men that would attend to them is eunuchs, because that would guarantee that nobody is sleeping with these women. And so that's the only people they're ever going to see, is the eunuchs, the other women, and their children if they have any. And they're literally going to spend their entire life just living in this bubble of luxury and pleasure and maybe the king will ask for them every once in a while but it is not uncommon for some of these women never ever ever see the king ever again in their life yet they're still considered the wife of the king for some of these women this is a dream come true because this in some of their cases it could be that being regulated to a life of isolation in a palace with everything that they would ever want at their fingertips is better than living in the, the ghetto of some torn out city where they're eking out of survival. And so for some of these women, their parents might have volunteered for them or desperately wanted to get them, and we would say this is absolutely immoral, and I would never want to do this to my children. But at the same time, none of us have had to ever live in a place in the world where our children are practically starving every single day and we don't even know whether they're going to survive and we're desperate to provide for them in any kind of a way. And so and they're not going to be completely lonely because there's going to be hundreds of other women that they're going to be living with all the time and all their needs are going to be provided for. So in some ways, this is an absolutely shallow, could-be-miserable life. In other cases, it could be better than the alternative. And it's hard to really, I mean, biblically speaking, we can definitely say this is not godly, and this is not what God wants for you. But in a human sense of living in absolute poverty, and wondering whether you're going to have a future beyond this week, we can kind of understand the desire to be a part of this life, even if the king never wants to be with you ever again. And that could be what's motivating Esther as well. So once again, this is not biblical, it is not godly, it is not moral, it's not okay, but it's understandable. It's understandable. You can, be, you can say, I don't agree with what you did, but I have great sympathy and understanding for why you were motivated to do that. And I don't see you as this horrible, evil person, even though what you did was immoral. I do see you as a desperate son, person who was just doing the best you could with what you had to survive. And so you can have sympathy and understanding, even though people do horrible things or semi-bad things, however you want to look at it. There should be no absolute condemnation of her, but at the same time we can't say that this is okay. And that's the tension we struggle with. Because we tend to either lean towards lack of understanding and wanting to condemn the action that we absolutely condemn them to. And then we call them names and judge them and condemn them. Or we go to the extreme and say, well, I understand that, and I want to be sympathetic, and I want to show you love, and then we begin to condone their actions and their behavior too. And that tension of, I don't condone your behavior, and I'm going to call it a sin when it's a sin, but I totally am sympathetic, and I understand why you did that, and why you came from where you did, and I still love you, and I'm willing to come along your side. That's a hard tension to maintain, especially if it reminds us of things that we have had in our past, or ways that we've been hurt. When it became the turn of Esther, daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who raised her as she, she were his own daughter, to go to the king, she did not request anything except with Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was the overseer the woman had recommended. So she only takes what he recommends because he knows, he knows what the king wants and he wants her to become the queen. Yet Esther met with the approval of all who saw her. Then Esther was taken to King Asherus as his royal residence in the tenth month, that is the month of Tebeth, and the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she met with his loving approval more than all the other young women. So he placed the royal high turban on her head and appointed her queen in the palace place of Vashti. And the king prepared a large banquet, going to have another banquet now, for all of his officials and servants. And it was actually Esther's banquet. He also set aside a holiday for the provinces and provided for offerings for the king's expenses. Even though this text is absolutely devoid of sexual details, the statements to go into is used four times. And this repetition communicates the sexual excess of the royal court. That women who were not chosen to be king's wife were then sent off. So everything the narrator is doing here is the narrator is intentionally trying to stay away from the details. This is the narrator's way of not wanting to glorify the depravity that is going on here. No need to get into the details and all this kind of stuff. That is not good for the imagination or not necessary. Yet the same time is repeating these words to go into, go into, and emphasizing the pleasing the king, in order to emphasize, yet there is an absolute depravity that is happening here. And so in every sense of the words, if there was an ancient version of Hollywood, it's right here. The drunkenness, the lack of wisdom, the banquets, the parting, the sexual immorality, the obsession on image and looks and beauty rather than depth of character, and the willingness to to debase yourself, to climb to the top, and to have this privilege in excess is exactly what the narrator is trying to show here. And what he's showing is, this is not a government that has your interests in mind. This is not a government that you should be looking towards. God is the only thing that cares about you and can take care of you. And the fact that the Jews will be provided for and protected in the midst of all this just highlights how much more God really truly is active. There is no way that the Jews could come out surviving at the end of this story if there were no God in this kind of a culture. If this culture is left completely to its own devices, unleashed on the world, there's no happy ending for the Jews. And I think that itself points to the fact that God is definitely involved. That God is definitely involved. Is that there actually is a happy ending? at the hands of this kind of a king and this kind of a palace and this kind of a government. Throws another banquet with more alcohol and more partying. And then he makes it a holiday. The day that he found the most attractive woman and he picked her based on her looks alone. Let's make that into a holiday. Verse 19. Now, when the young women were being gathered again, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate and Esther was still not divulging her lineage, or her people. Just as Mordecai had instructed her, Esther continued to do whatever Mordecai said, just as she had done when he was raising her. Now, two key things are here. One, Mordecai is sitting at the gate. We've talked about this in the past. If you're sitting in the gate, that means you have a position of power and influences. Typically, the judges or the officials sat at the gate and held their offices there. It also means he's sitting at the gate, which means other officials are sitting there and lots of traffic is going in and out it's a checkpoint so at the gate means this is where all this is where you want all your little birdies to be so to speak this is where you're gonna know everybody who's coming in and out this is where you're gonna hear all the political rulings that are being made in court cases and all that kind of stuff this is having your finger on the pulse of the culture in contrast the king is up in this palace surrounded by beauty and wealth and excess and wine. And his advisors have their finger on the culture. No, they don't. Meanwhile, Mordecai is in the gate with everyday normal people who are passing in and out. All the officials who be passing in and stating their business for being in the capital all the the lower court cases and the higher court cases that are all being dealt, what people are upset about, what laws are passing, how things are... He's sitting there. He truly has his finger on the pulse. It also sets you up for the fact that he is in the place over here, a conspiracy against the king. That puts him in the right place to report that. The other thing that you're being let know is that even though Esther has become the queen and she is now in a very powerful political place, and that she has great power and great connection to the king now, she still submits to the authority of Mordecai as her guardian. And she still takes his wisdom and his advice. This is God placing both of them in the right places, and their relationship is the right place in order to protect the Jews from what is about ready to happen in the story. Verse twenty one. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigathon and Tersa, two of the king's eunuchs, who protected the entrance, became angry and plotted to assassinate King Asherus. When Mordecai learned of the conspiracy, he informed Queen Esther, and Esther told the king and Mordecai's behalf, and the king then had the matter investigated, finding it to be so, and had two conspirators hanged on the gallows. And it was then recorded in the Daily Chronicles in the king's presence. The importance of that is showing you that Mordecai is interested in doing the right thing. But the other thing is that totally sets you up for the climax of the story of on that night the king could not sleep. And setting you up for that. So this is a foreshadow. You're like, wow, that's a kind of a random thing to throw into the story, but then it becomes a key thing later. And that's exactly what movies do. This random thing will happen somewhere and you're like, that had nothing to do with the story in any kind of way. And then later on, all these things kind of converge on each other and you realize that was a pivotal moment to set up for the climax. This is what we call a pivotal moment that sets you up for the climax to be able to happen. Gallows. This is a Bad mistranslation. There are no gallows. Hanging people by a noose or rope was not really a thing that happened in the ancient world a lot. Uh, And that's more of a frontier American kind of a thing. What this should be known as is an impaling pole. An impaling pole is where they literally take a pole that's about like an inch in diameter or something like that. And then they impale you from bottom to top through your body. And then they hold you up and they put you on display. And this was something, this is later going to be called crucifixion. So this was a way of crucifying people as well. It's the Romans who are going to add the cross beam and do some other things, even though the Romans would still impale people. In fact, the Romans would often impale people and then use them as human torches in order to light up the gladiator pits. And so this is a horrible way to die. And this was a favorite way of killing people in the Persian Empire. In fact, there is a record of Darius actually impaling 3,000 people on a single day and lining their bodies up along the road as a, a, a message. And so... This is not just about killing people. It's about putting them on display in the most gruesome way possible. And the ancient world empires were not just interested in executing people. They also wanted to display the gruesomeness of it by basically saying, don't do what they did or that will happen to you too. And and this is how they rule by peace. So when we talk about the Persian Empire ruling with peace... Or when Octavian, who would later become Caesar Augustus, would rule and he ruled with the Roman Empire with the greatest amount of peace that the world has probably ever seen in that time period. It was peace under the boot of the heel, and basically it was just like any time anybody stepped out of line, he just crushed you as hard and as violently and as publicly as possible, so that everybody would be absolutely afraid to rebel against the Roman Empire, and you have peace. This is basically the equivalent of a family who walks on eggs and eggshells with an abusive alcoholic father. And there's peace in the home, but there's only peace because no one does anything out of the norm to set off the rage of dad in any kind of a way. But that's not true peace. And that's why when the Bible comes and God says peace and goodwill for those who are the covenant people of God when Jesus arrives. That's what the the angels announce to the shepherds. And the idea is that Christ is bringing true internal peace in contrast to Caesar Augustus' external peace. And so this is the peace that they bring to the empire. Don't mess with us or we'll publicly, violently humiliate you in front of everybody so that everybody will be too afraid to do the same thing. And so don't conspire against me and try to assassinate me because this is what happens, and I want everybody to see it. And that's what's being displayed here. What the narrator has done so far is he has set the world up for you. This is the world that we live in. Well, this is the world that they live in. This is the dangerous, uncertain world where anything horrible can happen to you at any moment. And you live in constant fear that you're going to be that random person today that's going to be crushed or ignored or taken by force to be something in the king's palace. We're also introduced to Mordecai and Esther both in their placement, strategic placement in the palace to later protect the Jews, as well as their moral character and what they're truly like. Then we're also set up to the fact that we cannot trust this government. We cannot trust this government in any kind of a way. They're irrational, they're drunks, and this is an absolute satire. And this is an absolute scary place to be. If that wasn't bad enough, we haven't been introduced yet to the absolute genocide that's about ready to come. When we are now introduced to Haman, who is this deplorable child, who is willing to annihilate an entire people group because of what one man does, in some ways you're like, that's not really surprising. That's not surprising that that happened. And that's what makes us absolutely sad, is that you wouldn't be surprised that happens. And in some ways, that's the world we live today. We have seen so much on the news and in history books throughout the years in Europe and America and even in the greater part of the world and even in the Bible that you shouldn't be surprised when horrible, evil things happen. Yet at the same time, how sad is it that we live in a broken world that we wouldn't be surprised by that kind of stuff? But at the same time, how naive would you be when you are surprised that stuff like that happens. This is what the narrator is introducing you to. Welcome to the world that we live in. Welcome to the world that we live in.